Good afternoon to everyone and welcome to Table Talk, a conversation on race. And it's good to be with everyone on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Today is August 3rd, 2022. And I do really want to take this time to genuinely thank you and encourage you as you continue to grow, learn, and implement anti-racism ministries into your context. And as always, the goal of our webinar is to bring awareness to the anti-racism work in the Florida Conference, to equip and support those who are integrating anti-racism into their ministry and into their lives, and because we believe that anti-racism is an act of discipleship, we believe that this is how we love God and we love neighbor. My name is Erwin Lopez, and I'm a member of the Beloved Community, which works alongside the, anti, the Bishop's Anti-Racism Task Force. And today's webinar is part one of a two-part series on the Beloved Community. And so as our today's speaker shares, and as you listen to our speaker, please share your questions, because we'll have a time for Q&A at the end of today's session. So we have a very special guest today. Our guest is Dr. Miguel de la Torre. Dr. Miguel de la Torre is an international scholar, a documentarian, a novelist, academic author, and a scholar activist. The focus of Dr. de la Torre's academic pursuit is social ethics within contemporary US thought, specifically on how religion affects race, class, and gender oppression. He's authored over 100 articles and published 41 books, six of which have won national awards. We're gonna make sure that we send you his information after today's webinar so that you can have more information about his books and just learn a little bit more about him. He also presently serves as a professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at ILIF School of Theology in Denver. And so he's gonna be talking today on the beloved community. So thank you so much, Dr. Miguel de la Torre for coming today. And without further ado, the floor is yours. Thank you for having me today. I'm very glad to be with you all. I've been asked to talk about the beloved community. And as we know, this is a concept that was advocated by Martin Luther King Jr. some 60 years ago. But if we're gonna be honest with ourselves, it's been 60 years and we're no closer to this beloved community now than we were back then. Um, King may have argued that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. However, I'm wondering if the moral universe really could care less which way it bends. And if we're going to, if the, if, if we're going to bend towards justice, then we're the ones that have to do the bending. We're the ones that have to bring about this beloved community because it's not happening. In, in a way, it's kind of hopeless, which reminds me of the verse from Ecclesiastic, uh, vanity of vanity, says the teacher, absolute fertility, everything is meaningless. Now, I want to begin with this hopeless tone. Um, in fact, I wrote a book called Embracing Hopelessness, because as time goes on, it seems that we are not getting any closer to having an anti-racist society, quite the contrary. Um, it, it just seems to be getting worse. So, so what I call for is the embracing of Saturday. Saturday is that period when um, right after the crucifixion of Friday and before the resurrection of Sunday, that space in where you're not quite sure if a resurrection is going to even occur. 
I say this because I find that the vast majority of people who are disenfranchised, who are disinherited, who are oppressed, live in this uh, space of Saturday. And when you live in the space of Saturday, to, to, to argue um, that all things work for good for those who love God and who have been called according to God's purposes, it sounds somewhat hollow in the midst of the suffering that oppression and racism creates. So I guess what I'm trying to figure out and what I hope to talk to you over the next 15 to 20 minutes is what becomes our ethical responsibility in a, in, in a time of hopelessness, in a time where this beloved community is not coming together, in a time in where racism um, and, and, and sexism and, and, and homophobia and, and classism are all on the rise and becoming more entrenched within our society. So, so I wanna begin with, with some somewhat controversial comments. And the first one is that hope could be detrimental to communities of color. And what I say, but what I mean by that is that hope has an ability of domesticating the oppressed. When I went to Auschwitz um, in, in Krakow, uh, I remember walking through the gates and there was a sign that said, work will set you free. Now we know that was a lie, but if you were Jewish walking through those gates and you saw that sign, it provided the hope that you might survive. And if I have something to lose, if I have hope I might survive, that will lead me to maybe if I keep my, my head down, if, if I don't make eye contact, if I follow all the rules, I might live. You see, hope becomes a type of opiate that keeps the oppressed domesticated so that they don't um, rebel because of a fear of what they might lose. Now, all too often we think of hope as being um, in a state of being desperate. But I would argue that hope, to be hopelessness, is, is, is an act of desperation. It, it, in other words, when you're desperate, uh, you know, when, when, when it, it, it leads to like being in a fetus position and grinding your teeth because there's nothing that could be done. But desperation propels us to action. I work a lot with immigrants who are crossing the border. And I always say that when they cross the border, at least in my conversations with them, it's not out of the hope that they're going to make it. It's out of desperation that if they stay, they're going to die. And they have no other choice but to try to cross a desert, even though they may die in the process. So how do we embrace the desperation of hopelessness so that we can move towards praxis, towards action. Um, now, all too often, I have my students say, well, if it's hopeless, why bother? And my response is that we fight for justice not because we're going to win. In other words, chances are we're going to lose. Chances are the uh, the, the white supremacy that undergirds this country will win in the end. Corporate 
capitalist America will win over the needs of the poor. So the issue is not, are we going to win? We probably are not. The issue is that we fight for justice because that is what defines not only what we say our faith is, but it defines our very humanity. I don't fight to get an extra ruby in my crown when I get to heaven. I fight because, for justice because it, it, it gives my life meaning and purpose. And, and, and again, it, it defines my very faith. So I begin with the realization that racism has won, neoliberalism has won, global capitalism has won. And I'm not going to see that overturn in my lifetime. So I struggle embracing the hopelessness because number one, it, it doesn't burn me out. Or too often, you know, I see people, you know, join social movements with all the excitement and the hope that they're going to change the world. And the world doesn't change. And then they get burned out and they walk away. I've been working on, uh, on immigration issues for the last 20 years. I'm not burned out because I know I am not going to fix it. I'm not the savior of the world. I have been called to be faithful in the struggle. I haven't been called to fix the situation because it is beyond my abilities. Um, and I can't walk away. You see, there's a certain economic privilege to be able to walk away from a struggle. I think of my parents who had a struggle with racism and poverty and classism. They could never walk away. They were forced to fight for their very survival. So when I say it is hopeless, I also mean that part of the problem is that we have created ways by which we can feel good about, um, about, about um, protesting without costing us anything. In other words, we have developed a system where we could go, we have to go to the police department uh, to get a permit from the police department to protest the police department for police brutality. In other words, the rules have been established so that we can um, you know, make a sign and, and carry our signs in a protest and go home and feel good that we did something when in reality, this is a space that has been created by society that changes nothing. Following the rules of those who have created the rules by which to protect their privilege within society will achieve nothing. If we want any form of liberation, any form of justice, we are called to be rule breakers. We are called to, to hold the society accountable um, for, for its complicity with, 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 with structures of oppression. Now, and, and this is important, what, what, what I've been developing in, in, in the book on um, embracing hopelessness is what I have been calling an ethics para jorel. Now, for those of you who know Spanish, I apologize for my language. And for those of you who have yet learned the language of the angels, let me try to translate this word jorel. It's a kind of word you don't use in polite conversation. It's similar to the English word that is four letters long, begins with F and ends with K. And, and, and what I mean by this is that 
oppressed people throughout the centuries when the power structures were designed to silence and kill them, the only way that they were able to try to have justice is not only refusing to play by the rules, but more importantly, subverting those rules, um, screwing with the structures themselves. Um, think of Jesus entering the temple and overturning the tables, um, screwing with the structures that have been established that normalizes oppressive actions. So, so what I'm calling, and by the way, this is not something that is, um, that I created in my ivory tower. Oppressed people have always done this. Think of the indigenous community with uh, trickster symbols like coyote or spider. Uh, think of the African-American community that has bear rabbit and bear bear. Uh, the Mexican community has cantinfra. Uh, we Cubans have pepito. And of course, Puerto Ricans have one bobo. And, and, and the tradition that I come from, which is, um, uh, what's known as Santeria, which is an Afro-Cuban religion, um, has Elegua, which is the trickster within that faith tradition. So, so oppressed people have always looked at tricksters, people that screw with the system as a way of doing ethical analysis, as a way of, of, of doing ethical praxis. And, and in a certain, certain way, the Bible is full of tricksters. The problem is that a Yule-centric uh, Yule Puritan reading of the Bible has beaten out the trickster images of the Bible. Think of King David, who pretended to be mad in front of the um, opposing king so as not to be killed. Or Jacob, who ends up with two wives, not knowing that one was the sister. More importantly, think of Tamar, who plays the prostitute to, 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 to hold Jacob accountable to what he was supposed to offer her, which is the next child, his next son as, his, as, her, as her husband. Um, Jesus was a tremendous trickster. Every time you asked him a question, he, he screwed with, with, with the answer so that it, it turned it on his head. And one could even argue that Satan is the ultimate trickster when he tries to trick Jesus in the wilderness. So you have these trickster images throughout the Bible. We just don't recognize it because we have been taught to read the Bible through Eurocentric uh, white eyes. But when we read the Bible from our own community, from our own social uh, structures, um, we see these, um, these, um, uh, these images a lot more clearly. So what does it mean then to, to, to do a trickster ethics, an ethics para jorel, um, from the margins of society, from the um, underside of history. Um, and, and, and the best way to explain this is, is to give you an illustration. And the illustration I, I usually go to is uh, the Young Lords. Uh, I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with the Young Lords, but those of us who are old enough remember that the Young Lords were a street um, gang of the late 1960s. Um, they were in Chicago and New York. Um, and, and the Young Lords were a Latino gang. And, 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 they, and they were radicalized um, from being a turf gang into, to, into being a, a, a social justice organization trying to bring 
um, uh, the beloved community in their own way um, against the racism and the anti-Latino racism uh, and, and, and ethnic discrimination of their time. So, so I'll give you an example of two things that they did and, and, and to, to, to illustrate what I mean by this ethics para joder. Um, in New York City, they went ahead, um, they lived, you know, they, they were based basically in Spanish Harlem. And in Spanish Harlem, the you know, sanitation department will pick up the garbage whenever they kind of felt like it, whenever they had extra time, uh, they would come out and pick it up. So, so the streets were very dirty. So, so the young lord went ahead and, and swept the streets and cleaned the garbage and put it in bags and put it on the street corner. And they called the sanitation department to come pick up the garbage. And the sanitation department laughed at them and, and hung up. So they took all those garbage bags to Third Avenue right before rush hour traffic, and they build a three to four foot wall with those garbage bags, and they set it on fire. Now, of course, the police came, um, beat them up, they arrested them. But in the process of screwing with the structures, um, they went ahead and, 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 and called the New York Times to show up. And the New York Times started doing articles about the, um, the, the trash of, of, of Spanish Harlem and how it's not being picked up regularly. And, and the pressure um, from the media uh, kind of shamed the government to do what the government said they were supposed to do. And that is to provide services to, to, to the residents. So now garbage is picked up twice a week like everywhere else. Let me give you a second example. And that is um, the young lords went to um, La Primera Iglesia Metrorista in, 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 in Spanish Harlem. And they talked to the pastor about having um, you know, um, you know, a, a food a food closet, um, clothes closet, education for um, you know about Latino pride, um, having lawyers presence to help people with their cases, um, having breakfast for uh, young kids going to school, and the pastor looked at them and kicked them out of the church. You know, you bunch of commies, get out of here. So the young law showed up the next Sunday. I think this was the first Sunday of December in the beginning of, of, of Advent. And uh, they came to Sunday uh, church and they picked up the pastor and they threw the pastor out of the church and they took over the church and they put up a sign in the front door saying the people's church. And, and people started coming um, and, and, and the church really became you know, full of uh, the residents um, you know, taking advantage of all these um, things that the young laws were offering. A couple of weeks later, the cops came, beat them up, threw him and threw him out. But the point is, for, for a couple of weeks, the, the people's church was really the church of the people. And, and here's the lessons to learn from the young Lord in doing what I'm calling this ethics para joder. And that is, how do you screw with the system to hold both the government and the church accountable to the rhetoric that they say that uh, they believe in? And this is different from the civil rights movement um, of uh, civil disobedience. See, see, during the civil rights movement, civil disobedience was that the laws were unjust and wrong. And you break the laws in order to uh, create new laws that are just. What we're doing in this ethics by the Horen is, is what um, people in the immigration movement have been calling a civil initiative. That is, the laws are good. 
uh, trash should be picked. Uh, government has a responsibility by law to pick up trash. The church has a responsibility to take care of its, uh, of its residents. Um, it's not the government, I mean, it's not the people like the young lords who are breaking the law, quite the contrary, it's the government and the church who are not living up to the laws that they say that they go by. So civil initiative are those actions that forces the government and the church to live up to its rhetoric. So this ethics para Jorel is an attempt to, to hold these structures accountable to what they say that they are supposed to do. Um, I, I have about a minute and a half left, but maybe doing the Q&A, I could give other examples, modern day examples of how this ethics para Jorel operates. So let me just end by saying that if we want to create this beloved community, if that is the goal, but the structures are designed to, to, to maintain white supremacy, that the structures are, maintain, um, uh, are designed to maintain poverty, uh, to maintain ethnic discrimination, and hence to, to prevent this beloved community from ever taking place, then the ethical thing to do is, is to learn how to non-violently lie so that we could find out what is true. Non-violently steal so that we could feed the hungry. How to be a jokes, a disruptor, a deceiver so that we can shame the power structures to do um, what they have always said they were responsible uh, to do. And with that, and about 30 seconds left, um, I'll stop now and I'll be happy to have any kind of uh, questions that you may have. That's, uh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Miguel de la Torre. And I just love this idea of ethics para joder. And I never thought I'd be able to say the word joder in a, in a, in a little webinar here, but for those who are Latino, we understand the, the meaning of that word. Um, but I do have just some, some questions and some comments as people share their, their questions on our chat box or in the Q&A box. I was listening, recently listening to a podcast with Eric Holder, former attorney general and uh, first African-American attorney general. And he talked about that quote that you began with. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And he spoke about that that arc is not going to bend by itself that it's gonna take people to bend that arc, to pull on that arc. And you touched on that a little bit, but I was just wondering if you can comment on that thought. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think all too often, those who have privilege, specifically liberals with privilege, um, they like to quote that a lot, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice because that, relieves them of any responsibility of actually doing anything to bend that arc towards justice. In other words, it's kind of like it's in God's hand, it's gonna happen, we're moving towards justice. It's this um, very, um, you know, not, not to get too philosophical, but very Hegelian understanding of the universe that we're always moving towards something better in an upward um, slant. But the reality is that, um, there is no progression to history. Um, the future could be just as bleak as some eras of the past. 
So I guess what um, a lot of us are saying, not just myself, but as you mentioned, the former attorney general, is that if we are going to embrace that term, that, that, that saying from MLK, then we have to realize that there's a responsibility that we have to make, to do the bending. Um, and, and, and that's not an easy task. Which reminds me of some conversations that I've had with leaders in our conference. And I've, I've heard it said this way, absence of conflict is healthy. But as you share with us today, absence of conflict is privilege. Yes, absolutely. Um, can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, absence of conflict means that, well, in order to have absence of conflict, you have to keep the oppressed voiceless. You have to keep the oppressed silent. You have to allow the structures of oppression to operate without any disruption. So the, the very fact that you do not have conflict would show me, or you will demonstrate that the poor don't have voice, that women can't speak for themselves, that people of color are, are submissive to the very structures of oppression. Only when you have conflict, only when you have people pushing back, do you have the ability to maybe bring about some change. Not that you're going to eliminate oppression, but maybe we could move towards something more just than what we have now. What would you say to those who feel this passion, but are afraid? They don't want to be somebody, a rebel rouser. They don't want to be somebody who creates conflict. You know, and, and also for those who are engaged in the conflict, any tips for them in terms of keeping their mental health? Oh, absolutely. I mean, these are good questions. Um, number one, fear um, is a powerful tool to domesticate people. As long as I'm afraid of losing something, my livelihood, my life, um, as long as I'm afraid, I won't do anything. This is why I'm talking about embracing hopelessness. Because once I embrace that it's truly hopeless, that I literally have nothing to lose, that's when I become the most dangerous. As long as I have something to lose, as long as I'm afraid of losing something, I'm not going to rebel. I'm not going to risk what I have for something that, you know, for, for something that I may never obtain and that I could lose in the, in the, in the process. But I would argue that if we're going to be in solidarity with the least of these, the least of these have nothing to lose. How can I be with those who are hungry and thirsty and naked and the alien and the imprisoned and the infirm if I'm not willing to risk anything to be in solidarity with them? And it's not being, you know, that's not being faithful to the gospel. That's instead 
the privilege of, of, of handing out charity that costs me nothing. I have no choice, but if I'm, but to share the same fate as those who are losing everything. I mean, that's what the gospel message is all about. And, and, and that's what the call to ministry is. I mean, the call to ministry is not to have a very fancy church. The call to ministry is, I think somebody once said, pick up a cross and, and, and follow. I mean, either we say we believe in this rhetoric or, or we look at this as just a job opportunity. You know, we have a great question from Mary Robertson, and she asks, shouldn't we discern what conflict is useful? And that's a good question. Obviously, I can't fight in every conflict. Um, as you mentioned earlier, mental health and, and, and spreading myself too thin. I have to know what my passion is. Okay. Uh, right now, my passion is immigration. So that's where I am fully engaged, willing to pay whatever price needs to be paid. You know, and, and that include a few times being um, detained by Border Patrol and, and, and that kind of stuff. In other words, you pay the price. Um, you don't go looking to pay the price. Don't get me wrong. Um, just a side note, I, I teach at a very liberal institution and oh, sometimes my students come to me and say, oh, Dr. Dolatore, let's all go get arrested for this and that. And I'm like, I'm a Latino. I don't have to go try to get arrested. It, it comes naturally. <laughs> you know, you, you white kids, you go get arrested. That, you know, but, but, but leave me out of it. You know, with my, my goal is not to get arrested. But at the same time, that might be the price that must be paid when you stand in solidarity with those who are being arrested. So when I've been detained, I do my best to talk my way out of it. You know, but sometimes you can't. So, so you have to know what your passion is, and then you have to be willing to be in solidarity with those who are suffering within that topic, whether it be the environment, whether it be women health issues, whether it be, you know, um, you know, medical, uh, biomedical biases towards people of color. I mean, there's just so many areas. So I always say, pick one that touches your skin and pick one that you do not have a dog in that fight. And the reason I say that is because, um, I, I'll give an example. I mean, I, I mentioned I'm very active in immigration issues, but when I talk about issues of immigration, I'm dismissed because I'm a Latino and therefore, of course, I'm gonna be um, in favor of immigration, immigrant rights because you know I'm, I, I'm a Latino, what do you expect? But when white people who have no dog in that fight argue for immigrant rights, people would listen to them before they listen to me. Not that I cannot speak for myself or that I'm not articulate enough to be able to explain the situation, but we also have to use strategy. We need allies. So when I say I pick an issue that touches my skin, and then I pick an issue that has nothing to do with me, um, this way I could be an ally to other groups and hope that other groups will be an ally to issues that are important to me. These are all great points and I wanna thank you for your time. I do have one last question and that is touching back on the beloved community. 
because for me, the beloved community is open to interpretation. Um, but I wanna ask you, what is the beloved community to you? What are some examples of beloved community? Um, working with the foundation that Martin Luther King's beloved community was an all-inclusive community that had these shared values of nonviolence and making sure that everybody was supporting each other and they were meeting basic needs of food and shelter and for the sake of humanity because Martin Luther King saw everybody as a child of God. And so with that foundation, I believe that the beloved community can be open to interpretation, but for you, what is the beloved community? And what are some glimpses of the beloved community that you've seen in the world? I think you just explained very, uh, very well what the beloved community is, uh, the way Martin Luther King um, described it. Um, and, and if I want to be theological, I would say that it's based on this idea of the Imago Dei, that we all have the image of God within us, that, that every human being is, has the image of God. Therefore, every human being has worth and, and, and dignity. Um, even those people who we totally disagree with have, you know, have worth and dignity because they have the image of God. Um, and, and that's that, that's not easy to do. I mean, it, it's a lot easier for me to, to be in community with people who I like and who are like-minded. It's harder to be in community with people who, who I know are, uh, you know, hate everything about me and, and everything that I stand for. But if I could respect the dignity of every human being, that's part of that beloved community. Um, obviously, it, it is, um, you know, there were a couple of churches around um, the, uh, the country that I think really practice this idea of the beloved community in, in where you have all races and nations and, 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 and ethnicities coming together, um, understanding not only the, the differences, um, but how the differences enriches the entire body. So, so it's not an issue of everyone assimilating to one thing, it's an issue of bringing all those differences together in, in a beautiful symphony of, of humanity. I think that's a great point. You know, I've heard it said that there's a difference between a, a, a multicultural church um, and a church that is, I think the terms they've used is like a multi-ethnic ethnic church because there's some churches that have diversity in terms of um, ethnicity and background, but those churches often still force assimilation of thoughts. So there's a difference between what it means to be multicultural because you can have different people who are forced to think the same way than to have a beloved community of different people who are, have the freedom to think in different ways and somehow bringing those people together. And that's a good point. I've, 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 got, you know, I've gone to some churches where you know, the diversity of, of, of people are, uh, is fantastic, but when you hear the sermon, it's, 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 it supports white supremacy and it supports um, empire building and, and you know, it, it supports a certain political ideology that, that, that colonizes the minds of the people who are attending that church, even though they may be of different ethnicities and races. Yes. Well, I think this has been a very, very enlightening conversation. 
Uh, and I want to thank you again, uh, Dr. De La Torre, for leading the conversation today. And to everybody who's listening, we're going to go ahead and end our table talk today. And, and these webinars are always, um, our goal is to bring awareness, to get your wheels turning, for you to be asking questions and to continue to uh, provide resources and encourage you as you think about what it means to be anti-racist. But I pray for every single one of you, and I pray that you continue to fight the good fight, and don't be afraid to hold it a little bit, um, to screw with the system a little bit. <laughs> um, and change often comes through people who want to pull on that arc um, for justice. So thank you again. Thank you for having me. Okay, and we will we'll speak soon. Goodbye to everybody.